Hello, and welcome to episode 52 of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. We're back with an English language pod this week. For those of you who know Spanish, we hope you'll check out our previous episode, which producer Sergio de la Esprilla did in Spanish with Fulham data scientist Julio Costa. I'm not 100% sure what they talked about, but what I understood at least sounded pretty good. And we plan to do a Spanish pod about once a month here on the show. Our guest this week in English is Lauren Poe, a sports analytics developer at ESPN, where she's worked for nearly a decade. Lauren is part of ESPN's sports analytics team, which is responsible for metrics like total QBR, all their power indices for basketball, football, and soccer, and strength of record for college football. In our conversation, Lauren and I will discuss her career path from math major and math teacher to ESPN, her early years in the ESPN stats and analysis group, the challenges and the importance of data cleaning, steps she took to join ESPN's analytics team, what she does exactly as a sports analytics developer, creating and maintaining ESPN's metrics, her favorite college football metrics, and she's a big college football fan, communicating data well in writing, advice for people interested in the analytics field, and how she watches games. Then producer Sergio will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with ESPN's Lauren Poe. We're joined now on expected value by Lauren Poe, sports analytics developer at ESPN. Lauren, welcome to the show. We always like tracing career paths to show different ways to get into the field and such. So let's go all the way back to the University of Oklahoma. I'm not going to play the fight song, but I do want to know, what did you study there? What did you think you were going to do career-wise at that time? Hi, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. Yeah, so I was born and raised in, in Oklahoma. Uh, went to the University of Oklahoma. I started um, studying Arabic and Russian I really, really loved languages and learning the languages. And as a lefty, Arabic was nice because I could, it, it goes from right to left. So yeah, I felt, I felt special. Yeah. And then as I slowly neared graduation, I realized like, oh, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do after I graduate. And so I started trying to think like practically, like, is this, is this something that I'll be able to find a job with in Oklahoma? And I really didn't see a path. So I quickly switched to math. I grew up loving math. I had really good math teachers in junior high and high school. I was not very good at it. It never came naturally to me, but I, I really enjoyed studying it. And I saw the connection between learning a language and math, which which is a language. So it very quickly switched to math, crammed a ton of credits in and graduated with a BS in mathematics. So uh, after that, I started teaching high school in Oklahoma, taught geometry. And that was really, really fun. I love teaching kids math. I tutored my sister, my nieces and nephews. I, I love that part, but I just needed a new challenge. So I ended up applying online and, and moved to Connecticut in 2013 to work at ESPN. Yeah. How did that ESPN job come about? Like what what caught your eye? How did you get from teaching math to Bristol? I was just looking online and I saw a job at ESPN in the stats and analysis department and thought, hey, I love sports. I love math. This seems like an awesome fit. And so I applied online. At that point, you still had to take a sports knowledge assessment, which uh, I'm convinced they saw 
my terrible answers and were like, oh, we have to meet this person who thinks that they can work in sports because I, I really didn't think I did well on it, but I must have. And they flew me up to Connecticut and I did my interview. And I, I actually, the second day of my observation on campus, I got to sit with Hank Gargiulo, who was a new member of the analytics team. And I thought, oh, this is who I want to work with. This is the career path I want to follow. And so I, I started in stats and analysis with the plan to eventually transition onto the analytics team. Talk a bit about SNA. I know we obviously know what they do because we've been there, but to an outsider, what is the stats and analysis department specifically within the stats and info group? What does stats and analysis do? What were you doing when you started there? So we are very lucky at ESPN, as you know, to have a team of over 100 people managing data for us. So managing feeds, cleaning data, compiling different research tools and, and databases for everybody to use. So if you think about it, like any number that you see on your cell phone, on the ESPN app, on your desktop, on, on digital, on your television, whether it's, you know, you're watching a studio show, you see the bottom line, or you see, you know, a live event, all of those numbers come through the stats and analysis department in one way or another. And so they are tasked with managing a large amount of data. And that and that was awesome. So I spent a lot of time scrubbing play-by-play, scrubbing box scores after games ended. So it was a lot of late nights, but uh, I learned a lot about sports that way. Tell me about the data cleaning, data quality process, because I feel like that's kind of a hidden thing that no one, understandably, but no one kind of out, if you're not really in it, it's just something you don't think about. You just kind of think the stats are good, the data is good. What is that process What do you have to do? I guess, why do you have to do it even? It really depends on the source of the data, I think. So we work with league partners, third-party providers. We generate a lot of data in-house, and all of that requires different methods of, of cleaning. So from anything from, you know, verifying the final score and making sure that lines up with the play-by-play because those two things usually come from different places. Making sure that final player stats match play-by-play by quarter, by half, throughout the whole game. We'll we'll end up checking and making sure, you know, we have the right quarterback listed. You know, if you think about it, not everybody has the resources, especially when we work with other partners, not everybody has the resources to verify data the way we do. And so it's really helpful that we have these people that can verify things. And then, you know, that's an added service that we provide to people we work with. You know, we, we help make them better too. What happens when something doesn't match? If you find a feed or something that the starting quarterbacks listed wrong or a total doesn't add up, then what does the group go about fixing that or figuring out what's right? We have several places where we need to make that change. So if it's something that we know is incorrect because we can verify that it, it is, then we would make that fix on our end. We'd reach out to whoever provided us with that information to make sure they understood. Most of the time, that's really helpful. I think a lot of the times we have to work with leagues that don't have official stats providers, which makes it more complicated. Like college sports really don't have an official scorer. So uh, we work with the NCAA and the individual schools as much as we can. So you talked about when you started at ESPN, you had your eye on the analytics department, uh, you know, while you started at SNA. What do you do, whether it's specifically within the job or, or something kind of extracurricular almost, how do you, how did you start to make that transition, make yourself, you know, more appealing, more capable of filling that analytics role? As I mentioned, I studied, you know, just theoretical math in college. So I didn't really have a computer science background or a statistics background, but I knew that I wanted to learn 
that. And so I was really fortunate that the nature of my job and stats and analysis allowed me, most of my work was done as games ended, which means I spent three hours a night waiting on games to end. So I had that three hours to kind of pitch or conceptualize like different projects that I knew would be helpful to the department, but still give me the opportunity to learn new skills that I knew I would need moving forward. A lot of the times, even if you think about it, we have all these different people scrubbing play-by-play. Any way we can automate that process and free up people to do other things is a bonus. So that was really where I started, you know, pitching different automated tasks. And was there anything else you mentioned you had more of a purely math background? Any other things that you decided, I need to know how to do this or things that you taught yourself that someone looking to make a similar career path or change might look to, to make that analytics job something that you could handle? A lot of our data was housed in Oracle databases that we use to access. We would access using PL SQL. So I learned how to write queries in there. I learned R. I tried to, I completed a few different projects in Python. And those were really the, the three main languages that I spent a lot of time on. Any one of those better? If I'm someone looking to transition and I had to pick one, is there any, I know this is kind of an eternal argument, but is there anyone that better or maybe somewhere to start? That you would recommend you're, to someone. You're trying to get me to start a, like a fight. <laughs> That's right. Trying to get in trouble. <laughs> but no, I would say I think a lot of the times in terms of like software engineers use a lot of Python, data scientists use a lot of R. So I think it depends on what path you're looking to take. Full disclosure, I use mainly R now with my team. What is the analytics team, broadly speaking? What do they do at ESPN? I know it's a department few media companies have. What do you do kind of collectively? We work closely with stats analysis and production research to generate metrics that help provide another angle, another tool for ESPN analysts to reference, whether they're in studios, writing on ESPN.com, working on a live event. We want to support that and create whatever it is, different predictive metrics, player ratings, maybe tools that a fan could use, anything that would help enhance that fan experience. And as specifically as a sports analytics developer, what are you doing within that? Obviously, working on these metrics, making them better, developing them, et cetera. What does your role kind of specifically entail? I spend a lot of time working with our data scientists. Because of my background in in stats and analysis, I can help them kind of figure out what data points they need for a new model they might be building. And if we have them, what the quality of those data points are, where to find them, how to access them, how to maybe use those with other data points that come from different sources, map those all together. So, So I help them on that end. Um, and then a, another big job that I have taken on is running our simulations. So anytime we need to simulate a season using our player ratings or our team ratings, I will write that code. A lot of our metrics need to run in a live environment during games while games are happening. And so a lot of my work is dedicated to increasing the speed of those things and improving efficiency of those things. I believe you worked on adapting BPI from NBA men's college basketball to WNBA women's college basketball. What goes into that? Are, are there model differences? Is it data sourcing? What what goes into adapting? You know, obviously we're talking the same sports, very similar, but I, I'm sure there's a lot of behind the scenes stuff that's weird. The first thing is, you know, the quarters are different. That's like a, an obvious update. So about a year ago, I noticed that our 
well, I didn't notice it a year ago, but I brought it up a year ago, I guess, that our WNBA metrics were not anywhere near the, the level of what our NBA coverage was. And so I really wanted to step that up, especially ahead of the 50th anniversary of Title IX. I knew ESPN was going to be doing a lot with it. I knew that stats analysis was actually ramping up their data coverage of the WNBA and the players by creating player pages on ESPN.com to match the NBA player pages. So all the stars kind of aligned where I was able to improve what we already had in terms of our existing WNBA coverage. So I was really excited to build simulations, which were pretty similar to the NBA work that I did creating those simulations. Obviously, you know, WNBA standings and tie break structure is different. Their playoff structure is different. So that was where a lot of the new work came in. I'm always interested in the maintenance of these things because you probably just obviously just create them and they're done. But that's not necessarily a good thing because environments change, things change. What do you do, generally speaking, during the off season to take BPI, FPI, whatever it is, and just kind of check it out and see what you can do to make it better or find you know things that might be correctable or whatever it might be? A lot. So obviously our modelers will, at the end of the season, kind of step back and evaluate how something performed throughout the season. Was there, is there any need to kind of go back and revisit the work we've done based on what we've observed? Sometimes the answer is yes. Sometimes we're like, you know, I think we're good. I think, I think let's see what happens for another year. From my perspective, I'm constantly looking at how the metrics perform, how the actual code runs based on different game states. So especially when you look at the NBA and the play-in games now, we have three different seasons basically in a full NBA year. And so that means that IDs change, scheduled games change. When do we need to use a scheduled game that exists in our system versus create a hypothetical game that we think might exist, you know, in the third round? All of those states change on any given day. And so we don't want our code to break. So I spend a lot of time, you know, making sure that that doesn't happen. Yeah, a lot of just all the <laughs> practical stuff, I think. That, yes. You know, it makes sense it's, when you think about it, but you also have to think about it. Yeah, and it's not the flashy, cool stuff, but you definitely know it's a problem when something breaks, and that's about it. College football getting going. I know you're a big college football fan. What metrics do you like to use during the season? Do you look at? I know there's uh, there's always a lot of different ones floating around. ESPN has several that are all kind of CFP related, depending on an angle. But what are the ones that you like to keep an eye on during the season? I take pride in being a part of the team that really started. They really coined the phrase best versus most deserving. And that came about after they spent a lot of time trying to build an all-encompassing college football metric and then quickly realized that we really have two different things to look at. And so those are still the things that we like to use that we that most kind of translate to how we think the committee the playoff committee thinks about teams. So we've got FPI, which is how I would describe best. That's, you know, how good we think a team is moving forward. And then strength of record is really where we get our most deserving metric. So if you think about strength of record in terms of the average top 25 team this year, that would be Utah, maybe. So strength of records kind of all on the same scale in the perspective of that average top 25 team. And then we can compare every team and what they've done on the same scale. You can look at a team that is, you know, Utah's level of play, how they perform versus 
Alabama's schedule compared to UCLA's schedule and how those might be different. 10 and 0, 11 and 1, those look very different based on the schedule in college football. Anything else football wise that the analytics team has coming before the season or anything new you want to talk about in that sense? I think the thing I'm most excited about is something that Brian Burke has been working on for NFL, another player metric that I think will be really, really cool. And that's all I'm going to say until Ooh, he that's a good tease. releases it. Yeah, get excited. Like you know, you've done a lot of writing on analytics, both internally, ESPN.com. As you're doing that, what's key to you to communicating data, sometimes complex data, to communicate all that effectively in writing? I think it depends what you're writing for, like the platform it's going to go to. Sometimes we help, we'll provide information for researchers who know that a description or an explanation of a metric is going to be used on television. If you're looking at a live event, that needs to be able to be explained in you know 15 seconds versus a piece that might be going on ESPN.com that can be more long form where you can provide several data points or data visualizations that add context. So I think it really depends on where it's going and how in depth you can get. Any, we've talked about this a little bit, but any other advice you have for someone, if I'm a college student who wants to get into the field or someone looking for a career change and have my eye on sports analytics, what other advice would you have for someone like that? I think most people would say this, but there are a lot of really good data challenges, hackathons that conferences or leagues put on. I would say that you don't need to have expert knowledge in the sport to get started. If it's a sport you're not as familiar with, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to answer a question that somebody else has already answered, especially when you're starting out. That's a good way to learn something new is to apply it. And even if the work's already been done, that is great practice for you. The hackathons or the data challenges are an awesome way to get access to really good data that you maybe wouldn't have had access to before. You're sitting on your couch off the clock, officially at least, watching a college football game, maybe an Oklahoma game. What are you? What? How are your wheels turning? What are you thinking while you're watching these games? Because we can't turn off the kind of the analytical mindset that well. What are your? How are your wheels turning when you're watching a college football game, officially at least, off the clock? I think people who know me know that when it comes to Oklahoma football, I don't use my brain as much. It's, my analytical mind kind of turns off, and I turn into an Oklahoma fan, and I view everything through those like crimson colored glasses. So like I am 100% off the clock at those times. The rest of the time when I'm watching college football, honestly, I'm just rooting for FPI. <laughs> <laughs> so make sure FBI looks good. Just backs you up. Anything yeah. different? You're, I mean, I know your husband, John, works on the NFL, especially Monday Night Football. Anything different if you're watching something you know he's involved in? Yes, I get very nervous because I just want him to do well. He honestly, and he always does. He's like the most creative person I've ever met. And he has this like really strong statistical mind. So the stuff that they do there is, is always so fun to watch because I just don't have that creative side. So it's really exciting to watch. But yeah, I've, I've noticed that my analytical brain kind of turns off then too. <laughs> if, yeah, you're right. He's, he's got that good mix of, of the creativity and the, the numbers and that's a good mm -hmm. outlet for it. Uh, what yeah. about if you two are just, if you're watching a game together, I know sometimes researcher types can be, uh, we can be annoying to watch games with because we're always, you know, no. it's, it's true, really. You know, <laughs> Why are they abbreviating it this way? Or what's that graphic supposed to be? You know, all that stuff. Uh, what if, if you two are both watching, do you start to annoy each other or what is that like? Annoy is a strong word, Paul. I'm not going to say annoy. I would say his producer brain never turns off. So when we're watching a game together on television, he is constantly evaluating, looking for ideas, trying to think about how he would have 
have gone about something. Actually, I, I've learned a ton about television and the actual production part of a live event just from watching games with him. It's it's really incredible. Yeah, we're, we're a bunch of dorks. No. No. Uh, no. Okay, we, we like to wrap things up with our playing favorites segment where we uh, just talk through a number of, of your favorites. So let me start with what is your favorite number and why? Math teacher Lauren is going to say Tau. Tau is my favorite number. I'm not sure I remember what Tau is. Tau is 2 pi, which is actually, so if you think about all the different branches of mathematics, it's actually a much cleaner way to use like the ratio of a circle than pi is. Because if you think about it, like pi really only refers to the semicircle, whereas tau refers to the whole circle, which means when you get into like trigonometry and you need like a third of a circle or three quarters of a circle, it's just a third tau, three quarters tau, instead of like a weird two thirds. So I like that one. It's cleaner. Go tau. That's a great answer. I want to see someone put tau on the back of a jersey or something. I would love that. <laughs> Who was your favorite player as a kid? Shannon Miller. Oklahoma. Or any, yeah, she, Oklahoma girl. Or honestly, any one of the Magnificent Seven. My cousin and I both, you know, loved gymnastics, loved tumbling. She, my cousin actually ended up going really far in gymnastics. She, she worked, she trained at Bart Connors and Norman for many, many years. Really intense stuff. And I just love watching it. I could never do anything other than the tumbling part, but I just love watching all gymnastics always. At curiosity, was like Oklahoma's a big gymnastics program now. Was it oh was yeah. a thing collegiately? I mean, you know, back then also? I'm not sure. Honestly, when I was younger, I didn't follow if they did have a, a strong program. I didn't follow it. I was so obsessed with the Olympics. That's really the only place I thought gymnastics kind of existed. It's the only place you could watch it back then. Yeah, but now getting to watch OU sports, especially on ESPN Plus now, it's it's awesome. So you were a cheerleader at Oklahoma. You have a favorite memory, favorite thing that you, that happened or you got to do while you were doing that? I was on the dance team, which stands next to the cheerleaders. So, you know, cheerleaders dance team, all kind of the same thing in my mind. But we got to travel a lot with the teams, with the football and basketball teams, which was so fun. I got to see a lot of really cool places, be on the sidelines for some really impressive moments in Oklahoma sports history. This is going to sound cheesy. I like some of my best friends were on the team with me. And that was like, I'm still one of the women I'm closest to in my life and will be forever. I met on that team and I'm very grateful for that. It's the friends you made along the way. I know that's so cheesy, but it's true. <laughs> Do you have a favorite nerdy thing that you keep track of? You know, point to like, you know, Alo. We used, both used to work with tracks, all his ice cream shops religiously. Any, any favorite nerdy thing that you track? I love that. No, I thought about this for a long time and I don't think I, I have anything, but I remembered that my grandfather back in Ada, Oklahoma, used to track the weather and the rain every day and send it in to the National Weather Service. And they actually ended up getting him like a 25-year service award for his service. So I guess the data part might be in my blood a little bit. I like that. That's great. Finally, do you have a favorite how did I get here moment? You know, one of those moments, whether it's ESPN or elsewhere, where you just kind of really take in where you've gotten to and, and something that happens because of where you are? Actually, just a few days ago, I was invited to participate in a panel at the Women in Sports Data Conference in Brooklyn. This is the first year that it happened. And the night before the panel, they invited all the panelists to a, to a dinner. I didn't know anybody there. I just went. I was just surrounded by all of these women who work mainly for different teams in the front offices. I just thought, oh, wow, I am 
out of my element here. Like these women are all really, really, really impressive and really cool and really smart. And like, I am not good enough to hang out with all of them. And they totally like embraced me and accepted me. And I just felt so good to be accepted by your peers, you know, like especially all these really, really impressive women. So that really felt really cool. That's great. That's a good story to end with. So Lauren Poe, sports analytics developer at ESPN. Thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Back in the True Media Studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Lauren Poe for joining us on the show. You can follow her on Twitter at Lauren Poe, L-A-U-R-E-N-P-O-E. And check our show notes for links to other work she and the sports analytics team have done. I'm joined now by True Media's Sergio De La Espriega. Sergio, first of all, good job on last week's episode with Julio Costa. Sounded good to me. Second, what did you take away from the conversation with Lauren? Well, thanks, Paul. I really appreciate that. Um, We spent a good 40 minutes just strictly talking about how much we disliked your English language podcast. It was great. It was was a great conversation. Didn't pick up on that. Didn't pick up on it. No, Uh, no, that that Julio Costa interview was great. I'm really proud of it. I'm really happy with it. And yeah, like Paul said in the intro, we're looking to do those once a month. So keep an ear out. Um, And in regards to Lauren's conversation with you, um, I really liked hearing the perspective of a woman in data, right? For for me personally, again, we talk about this all the time. I come from a more storytelling background and not so much a data background. But, you know, I've seen stuff like the social network where um, there aren't many um, women prominently featured in, in high-level positions. And it's very nice that, you know, we were able to get Sarah Rudd on the pod. Um, now we're able to talk to Lauren Poe. I think it's really important to um, give that exposure and give that representation just so that, you know, if, if there are young girls out there that want to go into this, that, you know, they can see that they can get there. Um, I will push back, though, against Lauren. Poe's not a real number. I don't know what that is. Um, Tao is not uh, a real number. Tao is not a real number. I said Poe, right? Because they were yeah. last name that was in my head. Tao is not a real number. Sorry. I refuse <laughs> to. I, I know that my highest level of math is Algebra 2, and that's okay. <laughs> I wear that proudly. Um, it's not a real number. It's it's a word. Like, uh no, it's it's like this. It's a surname of uh, of an old Chinese emperor. It truly is. Like, it, look it up. It really is. Emperor Tao is great. <laughs> yeah, terrible. Exactly. I, I don't really know. Uh, yeah, it, it, it took me back to my college math days. It, I had just enough to you know where I can barely remember those things. I was like, I know this isn't. I, I know I remember learning this at some point. And uh, yeah, I want to. What I want to see is you know when they wear like uh, you know. I don't know, special baseball days where they have different uniforms, different numbers. I want someone to put that on a jersey. You know, put pie, put towel on a on a uniform. That's what I I'm want gonna to say. I'm gonna put the imaginary number symbol. Do on it. My yeah. jersey. That's what I'm gonna do. Yeah. Square root of I or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was fun. I, I, we may have had somebody say their favorite number was pie or something like that before. I'm not hundred percent sure, but Tau was definitely a first. So that was fun. I liked what she said about just advice for people getting into the industry, which is she said, get involved in hackathons, which I think is super true. Uh, just because it's a way to, it's not necessarily real world experience, but you get to do a lot of the same things. You get to see what sports data looks like. You know, the industry is a little bit, 
tight. You know, if you're not in the industry, it's hard to necessarily know exactly what you'd be doing or what are you going to be working with. But you get involved in hackathons. Well, you know, the NFL's Big Data Bowl is the big one, or there's lots of other conferences, symposiums that will provide some data and let you do something. Like it's just such a great way to learn. Okay. What does soccer data, what does NFL data, what does hockey data look like? Uh, do I have the right skills to manipulate this data and do the things I want to do? So, you know, even if you're not expecting to win or think you have no shot at winning or placing highly, just the experience of being able to get access to data, to realize the tangible things that you are going to need to do to be able to think about data in the right way. All those things are so valuable. Uh, and people often ask you know, me at least, how do I get involved? What do I need to know? And you know, if you have the right skill sets or even want to have the right skill sets, hackathons and other things that provide users with data is a great way to at least get your foot in and, and learn more about what you might want to do. And, and it works both ways, right? It works to see like, hey, this is what I want to do. This is, oh, the, yeah, this is, I didn't know what it was about, but now I'm hooked and this is what I want. And it also works for, okay, maybe I had an idea of what it was, and this is now something that maybe I don't want to pursue. Like in my personal example, my undergraduate degree is in theater, and I love the theater to this day. I consider myself an artist. But the day-to-day grind of being a an actor, it wasn't the life that I wanted. And I found that out by going and getting a job and doing it, right? We learn a lot in the classroom, and that's fantastic, and we need that education, and we need that knowledge to go forth and do things. But once we go and do things, nothing can replace the actual act of physically doing it in person. A hackathon is a great way to do that um, and, and being able to have that exposure and learn if this is truly something that I want to do or if I want to pursue something else. So yeah, benefits often, either way. Benefits you often hear way. people recommending internships. It's hackathon's almost like a super mini internship. You know, I interned at a t- local TV station in college, realized local TV route was not the route I wanted to go with my career. So it can be the same sort of thing. Take a, you know, a few weeks or something, work with hackathon data or whatever it might be, realize this is exactly what I want to do and I need to do these things to get better. Or this is not quite what I want to do, but I can take these skills and apply them to some other, you know, related field or area or job or something. Exactly. Exactly. And I loved that we had, um, switching gears a little bit. I love that Lauren is such a big college football fan and such a big, um, fan of the sport as a whole. Uh, I love that her goal was, Hey, when Oklahoma is not playing, uh, I want the FP, the team with the best FPI just to root for, for the metric. And I thought that was such a great data answer. And I was like, oh, that's, that's clearly someone who's worked a lot on stuff like that and really wants the metric to, to do well. But I also love that when she watches OU games, she basically turns into my brother, who's an OU alum. And they have no sense of um, reality and no sense of um, not – everything is emotional. All the, all the logic goes out the window when you're watching. And that's how I am when I watch the Gators. And I'm sure you are when you watch Kansas basketball and all that stuff. Yep. So. Yeah, I have not fans watched fans. an Oklahoma game with Lauren, but I have discussed Oklahoma with her before. And even then, you just get a little glimpse of – the fandom coming out, which is great. It's, I'm I mean, disappointed you didn't ask about Lincoln Riley. I was hoping that you would, you would go <laughs> well, that, that route. Been, that would have been a, a good, you know, what's your uh, favorite Lincoln Riley insult now that he's gone or something like yeah, that? Yeah, what's your favorite Lincoln Riley memory? When he left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, and that's been expected yeah, value. His, his $15 million house in Los Angeles <laughs> or whatever it is now. My, my buddy, I was talking to him last night and he said he lives in California. He goes, yeah, it's basically Oklahoma West out here. I was like, oh, wow, because <laughs> they took everyone. They took the quarterback and the coach and. 
I'm gonna start doing. Yeah, I'm gonna right. start calling them that. So but now we're now we're rambling. So you can't beat them, join them, or, or whatever. Yeah, it is, right? literally. I guess so. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Sergio. Thanks one more time to Lauren for joining us on the show. As always, we appreciate any sharing and feedback. We're on Twitter at True Media Sports. Could be just via email. Expected value at TrueMediaNetworks.com. We also appreciate any subscriptions, ratings, and reviews on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. Check our archives for plenty of other guests across different sports. Sergio mentioned Sarah Rudd uh, a few weeks ago. We also have several other ESPN people. Jeff Bennett, who oversees the Stats and Information Group. Brian Burke, who works on ESPN's Football Metrics, among other things. Lots of other options in the archives. On behalf of Sergio and everyone here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. We'll be right back.